0: Hello listeners and welcome back to the Total Football Analysis Podcast. I'm your host Adam Scully and we have a really exciting episode for you all today. The TFA magazine has finally hit your virtual shelves. At the start of each year, the TFA team band together and think of the players and coaches who we believe will have the best year. Last season, in honour of 2022, we picked 11 players and 11 coaches, which was perfectly symmetrical for those like me who love symmetry and even numbers. Some of the names from the previous magazine include Darwin Nunez, Matthias Jessel, Mallory Pugh, Marcelo Gallardo, Jonathan Giraldez, and Julian Alvarez. And yes, I've only listed some of the ones we got right. Nonetheless, this time around, we've done exactly the same. And if we get them right, we'll make sure to remind you by the end of 2023. If they're wrong, you won't remember anyway. On this episode of the podcast, we are celebrating the release of the TFA 23 for 23 magazine, which you can download for free. If you are one of our wonderful all access members, if not, you can become an all access member for just five euro 99 or five pound 27 to read the latest magazine, or you can get our yearly subscription if you prefer, which works out at about 59 euro 99 or 52 pound 80 for all year access to the TFA monthly magazines and our daily analysis pieces on the TFA website. I promise that it's worth it. If not for the analysis, then certainly the wonderful artwork, which is done by our very own Jamie Brackpool, who is super, super talented. Nevertheless, I will be joined today by TFA analysts David Astill and Fintan O'Reilly, as well as Vélez Club Football's Chiefs go, The Football's chief scout, the ever-brilliant Lee Scott, to discuss our top five players and coaches handpicked from the magazine itself and predict who we believe will have the best 2023. So without further ado, let's dive right into it. David Fintan Lee, Hello. I've been really excited to record this one, and I hope by the end of the year we can look back on the episode and not look like complete fools. Vincent, I'll start with you. How was your Christmas?
1: Oh, it was fine. It was quiet enough. Um, not enough. Uh, not enough football to watch, I'd say. But films, boring things like that. But no, it's it was all good. It was hey, all, all the, good. All
0: the all the with Mrs. Brown's boys. All that good.
1: <laughs> Avoided it, thankfully. Yeah, but <laughs> apart from that, it was normal. Yeah, David, what about you? How was your Christmas?
2: Yeah, very good. Thank you. Very enjoyable. Lots of family time, lots of food, mm. lots of alcohol. So you know, everything Christmas should be.
0: Good stuff. And Lee, how about you? How was the um, how was your break? Because I know you're obviously really busy, and I know that when you work for clubs, especially, time off doesn't exist.
3: Yeah, not really. I've actually take I took most of Christmas Eve, Christmas Day off. Obviously, I've got three kids, so um, Christmas is always manic. And, and busy but good mm-hmm. I have a family and good food and lots of fun lots of games and then I uh, managed to ignore my phone which was good I, I did the same to be honest I, I
0: turned off my phone for two days because I knew just the temptation even the temptation to check slack every hour cripples me so I just I had to stay away from it anyway we'll get into our top five picks for who we believe will have a great 2023 just as, as a disclaimer this isn't like the the best players and coaches of 2023 For those that get angry This is just five players and coaches from the magazine That we've picked that we believe will have a good year And they may not But they probably will We'll start though with Kieran McKenna Kieran McKenna's had a fantastic last few months Obviously he was formerly a player I believe at Enniskill in town He went to He, he had to retire due to a bad injury I think he was out for two years had to retire He went to Tottenham Hotspur's academy Worked his way up to under-18s level, became the under-18s manager. He was touted as a very highly rated manager at the time. Eventually, he was poached by Manchester United. He took over the Manchester United under-18s, and then he went uh, up to Jose Mourinho's coaching staff as his first uh, role in pro- men's professional football. He stayed on the on a Soldier. I believe he left after a couple of weeks on the Ralph Rangnick to take over Ipswich Town, which is his first managerial job in the professional game, in the men's game. He took with him, uh, Martin Peart, I believe Lee Grant also, uh, who has aired me several times, has his coach and with him as his goalkeeping coach. But he's doing a tremendous job with Ipswich. Now they're fighting for the league title. Uh, Lee, I'll start with you. I mean, I think what I want to say is like, kind I've been shocked by the quality of League 1 overall. It's almost that like the standard has massively improved. You've might, I mean, some Stephen Schumacher, some incredible coaches, Kieran McKenna, Ian Evett with Bolton. Some of the football that's played in League One is absolutely amazing. And when you go back maybe five years, the standard is significantly lower. Um, and I think Kieran McKenna's Ipswich at the minute play potentially some of the loveliest football in the league. Talk to me about, I suppose, his philosophy overall and his, his kind of coaching ideas.
3: Yeah, I think if you if you go back and you look at League One, League Two even, over the last five to ten years, there has been a seismic shift in the quality of football and the way that players, the quality of the players from a technical perspective play at that level as well. Um, I know that people get quite angry when when you mention this, but I do think a lot of it is down to Pep Guardiola at Manchester City. I think his <laughs> impact on i mean, people like Ian Everett are very vocal in saying that they are heavily influenced by the the style of Pip Guardiola and his philosophy and his, his kind of coaching strategies. And I think it, people have seen that there's a different way to play football in terms of being more possession-orientated but still vertical in the approach in terms of using the half spaces to access dangerous areas, things like that. And it's something that's permeated the lower leagues. Um, I mean, Ipswich are, are slightly different. I think Ipswich were... I mean, of course they're underperforming because they were relegated from the championship, but even in League One, they were underperforming in mm-hmm. regards to budget. They've got one of the biggest budgets in the league. I know from experience. When I was at Aberdeen, we were looking at it, taking a player from Ipswich, so I know kind of what their players are on, and it's decent money. So you'd expect a squad of players who are play at that level and earning decent money to be to be good. But Ipswich really weren't until they went from a Kenan. I think since McKenna's went into Ipswich, we've really seen a young coach with a clear tactical philosophy in terms of the way that he wants to play. It's very modern. I think that when he's building up from the back, it's all about superiorities and overloads and making sure that there's clean build-up, but the ball comes out. Um, What's really interesting, though, is that it's not dogmatic. If you look at likes of Russell Martin at Swansea, um, I love Russell Martin, and I think any coach who stands by his values the way that he does is to be applauded. But sometimes Russell Martin's teams will play it from the back, regardless of pressure, regardless of what's happening around them. At Ipswich, Kieran McKenna has shown that his team are flexible. So they, set backs, the centre-backs, full the full-backs, the six will drop in to receive with the balls from a goal kick, for example, or when the goalkeeper has possession but they're also willing to go over the top of pressure if they have to, to hit the channels. And and that kind of flexible approach shows that there is no one way to attack and there's mm-hmm. no one way to, to defend a Keenan McKenna team, which I think is really important at that level. Um, mm-hmm. He's kind of shown that a willingness to be flexible in terms of how they build up, but also how they attack, because there's a lot of positioning and use of the half spaces. Um, I think Adam, i right in saying that you wrote the article on, on McKenna for the I wrote the article on McKenna, um,
0: I think actually a couple of months into his tenure. Bryant wrote the piece, I believe, for the magazine. But I'm very familiar, obviously, with the work that McKenna has done at Ipswich because I did write a piece before, you're right. And I think
3: that you picked up on the fact that they use the half spaces a lot in terms Mm. of how they access the penalty area. There's a lot of players from different positions and it's all about rotations. Mm. It's easy to say that you want to use the half spaces, then just tell your wiggers to sit and then allow the full backs to go around the outside and things like that. But the midfielders for Ipswich as well come into the half spaces, so the central midfielders will rotate into that area and they're really good at picking up the ball at an angle, the angle that I call the, the Trent Alexander-Arnold angle when they get in mm-hmm. possession of the ball kind of in the corner of the penalty area and then you get opportunities to put crosses in from that area. Um. So so far, I think what we've seen is a very modern, flexible, tactically progressive coach, but also somebody who, when you when you hear people speak about him in terms of the players, the other coaches, the the board members, the fans at Ipswich, it's overwhelmingly positive. And I think that you could argue that it's easy to be positive about a coach, a young coach, when things are going well. But they're not just talking about results; they're talking about the way that he organises his team in the training pitch, the way that Mm. he handles man management, the way that he's involved in recruitment in terms of having a very clear idea or the kind of players that he wants at Ipswich Town. And and that's something that is incredibly important. But I think that he's one of these coaches that I call career coaches. You said yourself he had to retire due to injury. And then from that point on, at a very young age, he's thrown himself into coaching. And when you get coaches like that, they well, Julian
0: Nagelsmann as well was another, obviously. Yeah, half an hour. I
3: think, I think um, there'd, there'd be quite a few examples. I think Jaisley Reynolds mm-hmm. another one who retired young. Renny Marich, of course, who's the assistant in Leeds, he had to retire very early um, due to I think knee ligament damage. Um, I think when coaches have to do that and throw themselves into coaching at an early age, they they become more flexible in terms of their tactical approach as opposed to a young coach who was a player until 35, 36, 37, and then went into coaching from that point, they mm-hmm. tend to be more dogmatic and less flexible for me.
0: Yeah. And obviously the the race for not, not just the title, but the playoffs in League 1 is... It's so intense at the minute. I mean, you have Plymouth Argyle, top of the league, then you've Sheffield Wednesday, Ipswich, Derby under Paul Wan, new manager only took over a few weeks, but doing a great job. Bolton again, and side to play some unbelievable football. Barnsley, Wickham, and even Peter, I suppose, are controlling into that um, equation. And obviously they have just appointed Darren Ferguson back for the 40th time, which is impressive. But we will move on to our second manager. And actually, I should have made a disclaimer, that we'll go for coaches first. I'm gonna we'll move on to someone that you're very familiar with, Finton, Rages Labrie. He is, uh, again, quite an unconve- he, He's taken quite an unconventional path to management. At 47 or 46, he took his first job in the professional men's game. Talk to me then about him because he's, he's again, just coached youth football his whole life, and now he's doing such a great job in League One with Lorient.
1: Exactly. Uh, yeah, he was 46 when he uh when he took the step up in the summer, I suppose, step up or whatever it is. Yeah, he'd spent years and years and years in youth coaching and being involved in that side of the game. I uh, started out as head of academy coaching uh, at a lower league French club, eventually made his way to Rennes, uh, spent eight years there and then made his way over to Lorient across Brittany to uh to where he's been now for just over 10 years. So, yeah, um, involved in the youth side of it for pretty much mo- the majority of that time. But, yeah, six months now since he he made the step up to the first team. Um, and, yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting pathway, I suppose, as well. And, um, yeah, he's definitely had a great start to life uh, with the first team so far. I mean, for me, the best thing about watching him with Lorient is the – the way he's gotten the best out of so many different players. And I really think he's set up the likes of Lafay, uh, Ponceau, uh, Oatara, Moffy, and Stefan Diara to be mm. really, really effective and do what they do best to the best of their ability. And it's resulted in a very, very effective team, a difficult team to play against for sure as well. He has experience in there with the likes of Legoff and Julien Laporte, but yeah, it is a very young team. Um in general. Um but yeah, it's an interesting an interesting one. And you see a lot of these players' names pop up in conversations again and again at the moment with this is a guy who should be thinking about a move to a higher mm-hmm. higher level maybe, or this guy or this guy. But yeah, I think a lot of the credit has to go to LeBrie for how he's developed them so well it was only last year when moffy was getting a lot of stick in particular for maybe not performing very well he was pretty unlucky in fairness but um but yeah this season he's obviously been fantastic and linked with mm. southampton now at the moment as well so we'll see what happens there but yeah a great job from the Bree so far i'd say well you uh, you wrote
0: the piece for the magazine and there's actually a a, a a wonderful paragraph in there about Arsene Wenger and a kind of um, philosophical quote <laughs> he used. And I love that, right? James Jenny is one of my favorite parts of the, probably the magazine. It's really good if you, uh, if you haven't read it, please go read it. It's amazing. But um, talk to me then about, I suppose, the kind of formations he uses and and how, I suppose, flexible like Lee spoke about how flexible Kieran McKenna mm. has been at Ipswich. And would you say the same, same about LeBrie or would you say he's
1: a bit more dogmatic? <sighs> Um, I'd say flexible enough I mean so far it would be difficult for me To say so far he's super super Flexible or super super dogmatic But I would say in general He does seem quite flexible Especially in terms of how they Like to build their attacks You see a lot of different ideas and I think that's one of the Most difficult things that are playing Against them typically In terms of shape yeah they'll play with 4-2-3-1 in possession But Lafay has so much freedom in that midfield then. He might push high, he might drop deep to provide support to the the holding midfielder. Generally, the fullbacks will get high, the centre-backs will split wide, and at least one of the wingers, centre-forward and attacking midfielder, typically Ponceau, will stay quite close together as an option for the long ball, I suppose, and winning the second ball from there. But I suppose in terms of their buildup, then you look a lot at, they will try to overload one side of the pitch. And I mean, if they can get through there, excellent, but generally they will switch to the opposite wing then. And a lot of the responsibility will be on the fullbacks in terms of getting the ball forward from there. Mm. So look off, um, it plays a big part in that on the left a lot of their ball progression will go through the the wide areas also with lefay but um but yeah especially the wide areas i'd say in the final third then i mean again it's looking at how he's gotten the best out of those players and the wingers have shown this season Otarra on one side diara typically on the other and they're great at creating 1v1 opportunities for those boys out wide to just take on the opposition fullback, and they're fantastic dribblers. So it it does help get into the final third and create good opportunities. Mm-hmm. Moffy as well. I mean, I love watching Moffy's movement. He's so good at just generating space for himself and creating opportunities. Also for his teammates, I mean, he's great at attracting Pressure from centre-backs onto him And then space for others to exploit Again, the likes of Otara and Tiara. But um, yeah, I think The the system gets a lot Out of the forwards But the their movement themselves Has just been so good to watch for sure um,
0: at, at TFA we do the daily newsletter Where I send uh, Chris uh, Every night I'll send them For the next morning uh, Players or coaches or teams That have done really well during a game and then we'll put it out like an old piece we've done um and i feel like every second week i'm putting out either lefay or moffy <laughs> on the newsletter because i'm constantly keeping an eye on them and they're
1: doing so well they've, they've genuinely been amazing this season they've been great to watch yeah i mean um i hope i don't butcher his name but Domagoy did a fantastic uh piece on lefay i think uh, maybe end of summer, start of uh, autumn, that was a great piece as well. And yeah, he's an excellent midfielder in terms of how he progresses the team forward and also in terms of being a chance creator. He's been great to watch this season. And yeah, moffy uh, fantastic centre forward. Yeah, I, I love uh, definitely with his movement, but also his body. He's great at using his, his frame, his big body mm-hmm. to kind of, uh, as a barrier in a way, um, so yeah, he's a very difficult player to play against up front, I think. So yeah, there are definitely two to, to keep an eye on.
0: Can I mean, they're seventh at the minute. I know before the World Cup, when the piece went out, they were fifth, so there's been just a, a slight dip there. Can they get European football? Do they have the squad to do it? And I know, I know, League has been very unpredictable in terms of teams that get European football. I mean, one, one, one day at so I could be in the top three in the next season, they could be ninth. I mean, look at Leon, look at Lille at the minute, who are eighth, you know. So do you think Lorient can, I suppose, get top six this season and get themselves into
1: Europe, whether it be one of the Conference League or the Europa League? I mean, they, I would say They're in with a shout for it, but as you said, it's. I I honestly, I look at Ligue 1, I see so much competitiveness outside Mm. of PSG, and I know at the moment PSG are only four points ahead, so even that's not so cut and dry, but yeah, they'll probably end up winning the league, and every season you look at it that kind of way, but I mean, from second down as far as even getting into the bottom half, you see teams that could very realistically compete for for european football with a lot mm. of quality in there whether it's with name value with the likes of lyon lille uh, marseille monaco or just teams that are being extremely well run like lance or at the moment Lorient are doing fantastic as well so I i definitely would think they'll be there up until the end of the season. We'll see what happens this month in terms of transfers and things like that. I could definitely see them getting raided, um, but we'll see what happens. But I I definitely think they have the quality to be there towards the end of the season uh, at the moment anyway, for sure.
0: Well, if they do get European football, our prediction uh, for TFA 23 for 23 will certainly be a success (laughs) because it will be an amazing job that Labrie has done. We will move on, though, to the first... Uh, candidate from the women's game, which is, and Dave, I'll come to you, our women's expert on the TF, on, uh, our, our TFA, uh, Alessandro Spagna, who is at AS Roma as women's team. He's doing an incredible job at the minute. I believe they're second in their group in the uh, Champions League, and they're doing pretty well in the league as well. I think they won the Cup Italia last season as well. Yeah, talk to me then about um, about Spagna and his. I suppose the 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 tactics and the system he's using with Rome at the minute.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, Rome are one of those teams who they've been there and thereabouts, but the last couple of years, they've really had a, a, a not a revival because they've always been there, but you know I mean? They've really jumped up yeah. started to attract notice. Um, and, you know, they, they came second in, in Serie A, uh, last season. They're currently leading the league, which I don't think anyone saw happening because Juventus are always traditionally the ones that are up there. Um as one of the strongest teams in the league, if not mm. the strongest, but Roma are there. Um, they did play Juve in their last game before the break um, and the, that ended 4-2 to, to Juve. But I mean, Roma are, are still a really, really good team and, and Spunia has done fantastically since coming in. Um, in terms of tactics, he doesn't he doesn't tend to favour a particular system. He tends to, he's quite flexible. He's, he's used 4-2-3-1, 4-3-3. He's used wing-back systems four fall, back fours whatever so he's flexible and um that gives him different ways of winning which which makes it more difficult to play them because you don't quite know what you're going to get with them um <clears throat> so that that's the first thing in in interviews he said he wants the team to get on the front foot to dominate teams to chase games proactive all those things we are seeing so whatever he's doing on the training ground is working when it comes to the games um they they like to to build from the back um as well that you know they like to to create from the um, from the uh, defensive line use the midfield then spray the balls around good passing range they've got the likes of uh, Manuela Giuliano who's mm. been one of the best players this season she's got a fantastic passing range she's a brilliant
0: midfielder actually when I he wrote is. the for the he Women's is. Euros I wrote the piece for Italy yeah. and she was so impressive genuinely yeah. the, the, the superb midfielder
2: Absolutely, and and she's carried that on since. She's been brilliant this season. Um, she's she's really dictated games for them, and she's what they've got in midfield is a balance because they've got Juliana who does that. She likes to get forward at times, but then you've got uh, Brazil international Andressa Alves who's sort of given that balance. So when Andressa's gone forward, Juliana stayed back, and vice versa. So you've mm. got that balance in the midfield as well, which has really helped them. Um, but where I think they've really done well is their their forward line because. They brought in uh, Valentina Giacinti uh, this season, uh, in the summer, who has had a personal revival because Mm. last season she started off at AC Milan. Um, Fans of Italian winter football will know that Maurizio Gantz, the AC Milan manager, is not entirely popular there for off-field and on-field reasons. Um, And Giacinti struggled a bit. Then she went on loan to Fiorentina for the second half of the season, didn't really hit the ground running. I think she was she was competing with Daniela Sabatino as well for that, that space. So didn't really make too much of an impact. But since going to Roma, she's she's looked like a completely different player back to what we know which she can be. Um, and she's been such a potent goal threat for them this season. But where I think she's really fitted is, is because she has tended to drop back and to move around a bit. That's allowed the wingers to cut inside a lot more as well. So you've got the likes of Emily Harvey, uh, the Norway international. You've got Anna Maria Cercherini, um, who's been one of the most underrated players in the league this season. And what uh, Spunja does is he likes to use those wingers to break behind um, and then Dushinti pulls back. So you've, you've got that nice sort of little inverted triangular formation which has allowed you know, Harvey, uh, Cedgerini, Sophie Roman-Haug as well, uh, to, to really use their pace to get behind. Mm-hmm. They then become the targets and they've balls in. So there's, there's a real focus on crossing uh, and, and creating goals that way. Um, so they've got nice pace on the wings. They've got a striker who scores goals for fun at the minute. Um, they've got a good defensive base as well with uh, Bartoli, Lenari. Uh, Karina Wenninger, who who came in on loan, the Austrian international from um, Bayern Munich in the summer, she's helped give them another sort of defensive option. Um, they're willing to put bodies on the line, engage in duels. It's worth, worth noting they've only conceded seven goals. I was just going to so say, far. they've only conceded yeah.
0: seven goals. So actually talk to me then just quickly about, um, I suppose, their defensive tactics and how we want yeah. them to set up. But Do they press high? Do they sit deep? Uh,
2: they, they tend to sit deep. And then what, what they do is they they focus on just blocking, mm-hmm. you know, quite often this season, you've seen them make blocks. You see them put the bodies on the line, um, as I said, and, you know, engaging duels and, but it, it's not so much pressing high at the pitch. It's just making themselves hard to beat. And I think when you've got Andres Albers and Giuliano as well, who are quite happy to drop back when needed and others, not just them, um, you know, you've got that defensive platform. So, yeah, it's 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 the best record in the league. It's it's you know, no one else has conceded less goals. Mm. Um and you know, they they've they've got ten wins this season so far. Um which is which is you know, no one really expected them to, to, the to get that. Sorry.
0: Do you think they can win the league?
2: I uh that, that's a tough one because you know, UVA are always going to be there mm. and they've always got quality in their squad and they added well in the summer as well with Bierenstein and yeah. um uh, the Iceland international, Gunnarsdottir, Sarah Bjork, uh, Gunnarsdottir, both went to uni- Juve in the summer. So they've added well. They've still got a strong squad. I think it'll be it'll be going down to the line, but they've, they've certainly got a chance if they keep going. And as I say, Spunia deserves a lot of credit for the way that he's built that team up. And, um, you know, as I say three points through Juve, five through Fiorentina, who are third. They're through in the Champions League to the knockout stages. Worth mentioning, it is their debut campaign in the, in the Champions League. So they are just going from strength to strength under Spunia. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, really, really good.
0: Yeah. Spunya is definitely one to keep an eye on as well. And someone else to keep an eye on, Lee, is Marty Chifuentes. Have I said that right? I
3: think you're close enough. I'm oh, close enough, yeah. They know what I mean. <laughs> just fine. spin on it. Come on. I know you've got an accent, but you
0: can do it. <laughs> Marty Chifu- Chifuentes. Chifuentes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with that and say it was correct. Um, yeah. He, He, I mean... They've been playing some unbelievable football. I've watched a lot of Al Svenskin this year. Um, obviously, a, a friend of the channel, a four, former TFA analyst, uh, David Cellini, as, is the assistant manager of and just I like to watch Varnamo a lot. Just, I, I like David. He's a, a great guy. And, and Kim Helberg's side, who we also wrote about for the magazine as well. They play some unbelievable football. But when you watch Hammerby, they've been absolutely scintillating at times. Talk to me then
3: about Sifuentes. About yeah, he's somebody who's really interesting. I watch a lot of Svenskin as well. It's one of my favourite leagues. Um, mm-hmm. Has been for, for quite a little while. I think Sifuentes is really interesting because we've already talked about the idea of a career coach being a you know a player who gets injured early and goes into coaching. Sifuentes is 40 years old, but he has been coaching for a long time. Mm-hmm. One of my favourite things about him is that he was actually a, a youth coach for Millwall at one point. Which I, I can't think of a, a more jarring choice than a Spaniard going to Millwall and, <laughs> <laughs> and kind of trying to get it with it. the Millwall DNA in terms of football. And then he is a professional play model. Um, but he spent time at Ajax and at Millwall as a youth coach before he went back to Spain and kind of bounced about the lower leagues a little bit. It's quite, It can be quite almost like being a journeyman in Spain sometimes. You mm-hmm. know, we obviously have there at the moment with Velez and so you see a lot of the coaches popping up with the same names, coming to different places and kind of cycling around um, but what was really interesting was that he did that for a little while but then he broke away from it. He got the opportunity to go to the Arts events, kind of originally with AIK, um, as a youth coach and then as a youth team manager but what I really like about him is that he keeps making positive changes. He doesn't stay in one place for too long. He takes the next challenge and he pushes himself and he moves out of his comfort zone. So from AIK, he became first time he was first team manager, was at Sandioford in, in Norway. Um he had played 81 games there, and I think he was generally very successful for a club mm-hmm. who are not generally thought to be successful in terms of their budget, in terms of the kind of infrastructure of the, the club. From there, he went to Denmark, Alberg, and he was only there for just over a season, I think. But again, everything was successful. You said yourself, at Hammerby, he plays some fantastic football. It was the same at Alberg. Um, very modern, very positional play elements in it. A lot of different methods from building up the play and attacking. And then he was taken at the start of last season by Hammerby. Um, Hammerby are, are one of the most interesting clubs. in as scan as it is, they have a huge emphasis on the use of data within the club. Um, both in terms of recruitment, in terms of player development, in terms of how they how they think about the game overall mm-hmm. but he has gone in there and as you say some of the football has been scintillating. I think I saw recently that he was also like loosely with QPR and uh, when Mick, Mick, when Mick Beal left to do the yeah. ring to post um, there, was, uh, there was talk that they were going to request to speak to Steve Quentes I wouldn't be surprised to see him make a move to Britain at some point just because I think He's that kind of coach who is naturally curious in terms of where he's going to go next. Um, When you watch Armourby play, it's very clear. He's got a very clear game model in terms of it's 4-3-3 or 4-1-4-1, whichever way you want to talk about it. Um, (laughs) But it's generally, there's a lot of elements in there from positional play. So there's a lot of superiority between the lines. A lot of players are rotating around. And again, like we talked about with Keenan McKenna, When you talk about half space usage, it's not just as simple as telling the wingers to be inverted and to sit in that space. Mm Instead, he has different players rotating in different areas. So, again, the two eights ahead of the number six in the 433 three. there'll be a lot of rotations from them. They'll pop up wide. They'll pop up in the half space. They'll drop beyond, backwards beyond the six to receive the ball. And then the six suddenly becomes an eight and moves around. So there's a lot of flexibility in the way that he approaches the build-up and the way that he likes to attack teams and to move teams around. And I think that's where he gets a lot of his success. It's Players are allowed to be... They're, he's not strict in terms of the positions they have to be on some coaches when you talk about positional play it's so strict it's like it's been read out of a handbook and mm-hmm. I see a lot of that in Spain a lot of that in the lower leagues of Spain there's a lot of clubs who are possession based positional play based but it's so obvious what they're doing all the time because there's no thought behind it. It's just this player has to move here. We need to have a player creating superiority between that line so that player drops or that player switches in. Whereas with Sufuentes, there's a lot of different movements which I think makes it really interesting because one of the things that that players really thrive under him when they have a really good technical base, so a player has to be able to receive the ball. If you're a full-back, you have to be able to play centre midfield, for example, not to say that you could play centre midfield for a a team permanently, but you have to be comfortable receiving that area and having that 360-degree kind of movement pattern when you get the ball. You can't just be a player who wants to stay outside and stay on the wing all the time. Um, but certainly, since he's been in the scan, I think that we've seen there's a lot of interesting teams there. I know Henrik Jensen's just gone to Kalmar. He's an interesting coach from Mietzlund. Um There's a lot of interesting Obviously, no, so the,
0: the Kalmar managers went to Malmo because uh, yeah, Miros yeah. Mellier, was, uh, was sacked a couple of, uh,
3: I believe, in September. Absolutely. And th- there's a lot of interesting coaches a lot of interesting teams there. But I think Sifuentes and Hammerby are right up there for me. Mm-hmm. And I did watch a Hammerby
0: game during the summer. I believe it was against Norchoping. Uh, Norchoping were sitting quite deep and defending. I think it was a, a 5-4-1 they were defending in. Yeah, it was. And they were really struggling to break them down. But what they started to do was just, they, they were really patient, but they started to play backwards a lot. And then when Norchoping would step up, well, they weren't stepping up um, well enough as a unit so that the lines were too separated. And then Hammerby would always go back inside. So they'd, Kind of go back to the central defenders, bait them, step send the centre forward step up, and they'd go inside then and they kill them. Um, I believe they won in the end. I could be wrong, but I do believe they won. And Nor had a pretty dismal end to the campaign anyway. Um, we will move on though to the last coach on the list. And for me, definitely one of the most exciting and interesting. Uh, a guy recently that many football managers have fallen in love with for he, I mean, he came out and said the football manager had a big impact on his career. Um, his, his brother also manages at an extremely young age, I think with Cassi, Cassiupin in Belgium. I, I could be wrong on that. Um, it is Will Still, the manager of Stade de Rem, who at 30 years old is managing in League One, in the dugout, against Kylian Mbappe, against Lionel Messi. Um, Fintan, I'll come to you on this because you'd be probably better placed than any of us. Um fortunately, the football they play is is pretty decent, but they also they're also very tactically astute, really tactically efficient. I watched that game recently against Wren, uh Wren, who have have been incredible form in League One this season, League One, sorry, this season. They went away to Ren, I believe, and one three one. Um and, and kind of upset the apple cart a little bit. And I was so impressed by how they just completely stifled Wren and, and their attack and prowess that they have. Talking about Will Still, then, and I suppose his philosophy, but kind of how incredible it is that at 30, he's managing at such a high level already.
1: It is super impressive. Yeah, it's such an interesting story. And the more I read about him and the more I watch him, the more I just think he'd be such an interesting guy to just sit down and talk to. Um, well, you get that as well. I mean, I, I read a great interview with him from the coach's voice, which is really 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 interesting i'd recommend reading that uh as a uh as a compliment to our article and um yeah i think you get this infectious positivity from the the way he talks about managing and the way he talks about his his pathway i suppose to uh first team management where he um he talks about knocking on every Belgian club's door until he got a yes and a way in and starting with uh, video analysis and eventually making his way onto the grass. And then through due to his ideas and energy, in the words of this article, he got into a head coach position at St. and at 24, I think it was. So something uh, incredible like that. And again, you see this repeating itself, I suppose, with Rams and the way he's... Uh, Risen from the assistant coach role to the to the head coach role um, so quickly again, um, he was given the six games before the World Cup. Uh, as a as a starting point, I suppose it would be a good time mid season this year, anyway, for sure to uh, to assess things. And um, yeah, they kept him on because again, results and how the energy around the club lifted with him. So you get definitely feel that he's just a really positive guy to have around, which is the the thing I love the most. Definitely would be interesting to to sit down and talk to. But yeah, I mean, in in terms of the actual football. It's, um there's been a couple notable changes, I suppose, since um, since he took over from Oscar Garcia. Um, at the start of the season, it was all three at the back with Rams. And since he took over, it's pretty much immediately gone to 4-2-3-1. Um, maybe a big part of that as well is how Junio role has changed. So at the start of the season, he was playing very centrally. Uh, under Garcia, he's moved back to more of a a right wing position which is what he played typically when he was in Belgium as well and he did come out earlier in the season himself and say this is where he prefers to play, so whether it's a case of still being open to the players a little bit more with autonomy in terms of where do you want to play and that kind of thing or whether it's just a different view to the previous manager himself or whatever it is um, that is interesting for me for sure and then we definitely see a little bit of a drop in the average shot distance in terms of xg per shot already it's gone up a small bit so that will definitely be interesting to see uh whether this kind of like you said the efficiency efficiency in terms of shots seems to be a pretty big thing for him it was similar when he was in charge at uh, bear shot in belgium for a small bit as well similar kind of um, trend in terms of the average shot distance coming down and and being a lot more, I suppose, trying to be a lot more efficient with the shots that they take and generate. So those are a couple of things I've noticed so far. Um, But yeah, it'll be such an interesting one to watch develop. Um, And I read that I think it was Oh 25 grand or something. I was just to have to just pay. gonna say, so I think it was
0: it was about it was between 15 to 25 grand that Rem yeah. were being fined every single game he took charge. Surely yeah. they're making a loss on that, then
1: exactly. Yeah. But,
0: well, he's obviously uh, they believe in him, he's he's done an absolutely wonderful job. And I think the something that will work in his favor definitely is that he is English speaking as well. So there's a lot of clubs in England that will certainly be looking at what he's doing at rem and will keep an eye on especially in the championship and maybe in the premier league but definitely championship and obviously he coached in belgium coached in france i think i think he was born in england so he, he fluent english which is just obviously the, the trifecta wonderful of a, a you know the, the coach you kind of want if you're in england and you're trying to hire a manager from abroad he's english speaking and he's young and he has great ideas it's just perfect um so yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing how Will Still does. And as I said to you, his brother is also also really good coach as well. He's in Belgium at the minute. He's only 32, with, uh, Edward. So it's. Um, I didn't know
3: that. See, I've learned really on this podcast. I had no idea <laughs> yeah. that Will Still's brother was the coach of you I've, I've literally yeah. googled it while I've been sitting in the At 32 as well. He's You're quite right. young. I apologise you for being wrong. You're right. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't we're we'll going to yeah. look at you can after this and see
0: it's amazing two, two brothers 30 and 32 on their managing
3: and they played now. football manager together so that just shows that something obviously clicked that that yeah. sibling rivalry obviously pushed them on i hope their um their parents enjoy football cuz i would imagine christmas
0: dinner would be very <laughs> um boring to be around <laughs> <laughs> we'll move on then to the fourth player of our five picks for today Dave I'll come to you first then Sam Coffey a player you picked yourself at Portland uh, you know she's a Portland Thorns midfielder she's had an excellent year I think 2022 she made four appearances for the U.S. uh, women's national team so obviously it was a a kind of a breakout year in a sense for Sam herself Um, she's a really excellent midfielder I watched some clips on her so I could kind of get up to speed really what, what type of player she was like, but who better place to talk about her than you. Tell me then about about Sam Coffey and why you believe she'll have such a, an excellent 2023.
2: Well, I think the reason that, that she'll have a good a good 2023 is because 2022 being her, her first season in the NWSL, which if listeners don't know is the National Women's Soccer League. It's the top flight in American women's football. Um, and, that you know, the first year is always tricky because it's a, it's a tough league if you don't if you're not accustomed to it. It takes you a while to get into it. Um, she took to it like a duck to water. I mean, I mean, she offers that sort of defensive protection, if you like, that that CDM role um, that allows others like Yasmin Ryan, he and who who is another of their their um, close season signings. Um, Rocky Rodriguez, the Costa Rica international, and Olivia Moultrie, who's one of the, undoubtedly one of the talents of the future. She allows them to go forward and support the attackers. And, and you know the, the stats support that because Yasmin Ryan had joint most assists with five alongside Ashley Sanchez at Washington Spirit. Um, Sagita and Moultrie had four each, so they also ranked up there. Um, Sophia Smith, who plays for Portland, who um, fans of the, of the US Women's National Team will know very well second top scorer in the league with 14, one behind Alex Morgan. Sophia Smith Alex was on Morgan. the
0: TFA 22 for 22 magazine and she was. had an excellent year. I I, I wrote was. the piece for our. We were reviewing the predictions and some of them are absolute stinkers, guys. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. but <laughs> Most of them are good, but Sophia Smith, had an. she was one of the, the ones who just smashed it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, it's a second top scorer. But the reason that they were able to play that way and, and score 49 goals, that the club that is, which is the most in the regular season, and also it's a club record total for Portland, mm. um, was because they were able to rely on Coffee to add that defensive protection. Um, and she offers a lot in all three thirds. You know, defensively, she's quite happy to sit back, protect, um, block shots, um, f- um, fill in gaps where needed, um, close players down in the midfields. She's quite happy to, to press, to making deceptions, she reads the game well she links up play well uh, in the final third she, she can fill in it as well if she knows that you know one of the forwards has been taken out wide she'll she'll run forward with wax a full nine so she offers a lot in all three-thirds um and and you know Portland generally use a four three3 they've only had three losses in the regular season 24 goals conceded which is the third best record after ol rain and, and san Diego wave mm-hmm. um so they really have had a, a a season to remember as a club and I think coffee has been really really key for that um, because of what you know what she does and she is described as the engine room of, of the Portland team she, and she really is because I think if you take any Portland player out you can probably find some way of replacing them either through um, you know changing the system or bringing another player in but I think if you take Sam Coffee out you'd struggle because of what she brings on the pitch um, and you know she does a lot of unseen things that allow others to flourish um, and and like you said, you know, four appearances for the USA, so she is getting noticed. And mm-hmm. um, you know, with the World Cup coming well, up, this is this what year, I was going to ask.
0: Actually, there's a lot of competition in that midfield. Do you do you think she can, I suppose, get into the US side for the World Cup or at least the squad?
2: I think it. I, I hope she does. I hope she's. I think I said in the piece that she should be at least in the in the discussions of mm-hmm. Blackovsky when he's picking his squad. Whether she makes it or not, I think is it probably might be a bit tough because there are others that have got a bit more experience than her, but who knows, you know, she might've made a few more appearances by then because the world cup is in July. So by then she may have, have racked up another 10 appearances and be, you know, effectively a, a firm starter. So she may well then go to the world cup at this stage at time of recording, I think probably not simply because she only made four and there are others, as I say, have had more experiences and, you know, competing with the likes of Rose Lavelle, um, who else uh, Megan Rapino can sometimes play in that sort of inverted role as well um you know there, there are so many others as well um so I, I'd like to think she'll be in discussions whether she goes or not probably not but we'll see
0: excellent she as I said will we'll keep an eye out on Sam Coffey for the rest of the year and I hope she does smash it as I said Sophia Smith smashed it so there's a lot of weight on our shoulders for us to get this prediction or on our shoulders to get the prediction right. We will move on though to uh, Quentin Merlin. Uh, Fintan, Finton, you picked Merlin out as the as one to watch this season. Lee, I believe as well, just before I, I go on to Finton, I believe you wrote a piece recently looking at Merlin as part of like a data analysis where he was just top of like every it was near the top anyway of every
3: single metric you looked at.
0: Yeah, I think that
3: that was a few months ago. Yeah. Um, I I was just using data analysis techniques to look at players who had a high percentage of progressive actions from their team and Quentin Merlin was right up there. Um, fantastic player. I'm sure Quinton will go into a lot more detail than I will, but um, I actually tried to get an English club to take him last summer. I was just doing a favour for somebody who'd ask me to recommend a couple of uh, left-backs. Um, who were playing in Europe at a certain age, and, and he was the first one I thought of. And Nantes are such a weird team. <laughs> they're, they're just weird. They they openly don't have a recruitment process. They just they use agents. They're not bothered about anything else. But they keep turning up these players. Like one of my other favourite players, Osman Bukhari, went there from Trenton, And he I still think he could become really good. He hasn't been that great since he's been there. But... Maryland, especially, I think Maryland is going to get a big move and I'm looking forward to Fintan telling me where he's going to move to. Where is really he going to move then, Fintan? Oh wow! Um,
1: nice setup uh, with that one. No, um, yeah, he's. He, I agree with you. He's a fantastic player, and I, I um, definitely, in terms of the responsibility with progressing non-top field, it's obvious as well. So many different ways as well. I mean, you often see him inverting from left back in possession into kind of, I suppose, a typical left central midfielder position, like you see plenty of fullbacks doing. And, um, yeah, he'll get on the ball there and you often see him just take it and drive forward. Uh, it could be a bit erratic at times, but generally his his ball carrying, his technical dribbling ability is great. I love how he uses his shoulder feints as well. He's great at baiting defenders in and just kind of escaping on the other side and driving forward. You could see him beat two or three men in a dribble and then just get into a really good crossing position, either centrally or well, more centrally or out wide. So it's, um, it's a big, big part of his game game for sure takes corners as well really good ability on the ball um a great crosser um from deep or from advanced position so you might see him either you often see him link up with Moses Simon out wide and one of them will go inside and maybe Merlin will overlap or maybe Simon stays wide and Merlin actually underlaps from that central position and just gets into a crossing position near the byline which is really fun um or Merlin can just sit slightly deeper and float a ball in. So there's a lot of um, flexibility there in terms of his chance creation, but crossing ability and, and dribbling ability are are excellent with uh, with him. Uh, so it's uh, definitely a very, very exciting left back, I'd say, to uh, to watch out for. Lee, you,
0: you did speak about the recruitment side of things. From reviewing our predictions from TFA 22 for 22, it was so stark how many players had an excellent four six months and then went to a new club in the summer and didn't play. I think um one, especially uh, Viliat Svedberg, he went from, he went from Sweden to Real Sociedad and I think he played 70 minutes in total in this the, the, from, he was like smashing it in his four six months, went to Real Sociedad, played 70 minutes and it was the drop off was incredible. And obviously I understand he's going to a new league. What club, and I don't want to, I don't want a specific club, but what leagues do you believe, um, I suppose Maryland could go to to avoid that happening. What clubs are screaming out for a, a solid fullback?
3: I think um if I was going to move him now, then I think you'd either move him to Bundesliga Serie A uh, would be the two that I would pick. I think that in terms of I mean Fintan got his profile bang on, he's he's capable of progressing the ball in different ways, he's interesting because he doesn't mind coming inside or playing outside. Um and clubs people will tell you that work within recruitment in football. Left backs are so difficult to find when they're they're so balanced because mm-hmm. Merlin can also defend, which is is rare. I mean, you talk about players, you just talked about TFA twenty two for twenty-two. I was gonna call you out because once you, you gave us a dig about our predictions being rubbish, I went and had a look. And um, I think we did okay, especially... Oh, you did okay. You 50%, 50% was okay. But, yeah, fullbacks backs are good defense as well. You look at Calvin Ramsey, who moved from Aberdeen when I was there to Liverpool. He's a fullback who is the same with Merlin in terms of ball progression, but Ramsey is, isn't a defender. Um, he struggles on the defensive side of the game, and he always has. I think Merlin has that balanced approach. Um, I think that we will see him in the Premier League one, one day um, for a good club in the Premier League as well. I think he's kind of got that profile. But I wouldn't be surprised, for example, if Teo Hernandez at, at Milan decided one day to pick up and leave or that he was going to go somewhere else. That's the kind of club who have a, they've got a real focus on young French talent. And I think they're a club who would be interested in a profile like Merlin. Um, same with the Bundesliga, but it would have to be. I think the Bundesliga is difficult for recruitment at the moment because there isn't as much money in the Bundesliga as there was maybe five, ten years ago. Um Clubs aren't as keen to spend, but you look at a Frankfurt, for example, who lost Philip Kostic to Juventus and um, they signed uh, Mwani, Mwani, who was Maryland's teammate at Nantes. I, I saw on social media that they're now quoting 100 million euros for Kola I have no idea where they're getting that after getting them a free transfer, but there you go. Um, but they're a club who would be interesting as well. So Bundesliga Serie A is the first step, but then certainly Premier League going forward.
0: David, we'll move on to. Somebody who's, I suppose, ended 2022 having an incredible uh, dream move to Real Madrid. And it is Endric Felipe, but he, I suppose, he's not going to be joining Los Blancos until 2024. He could still have an incredible year at Palmeiras because he hasn't actually played that much force team football. Um, so I, I believe he can probably break into the force team uh, this year obviously before he goes to Real Madrid then next year. He, he he, like Vinicius Jr. almost, kind of, when you see, I mean, I remember when Vinicius Jr. went to Real Madrid, it was, you were thinking at the time, what are they doing for 50-odd million on a 15, 16-year-old? In hindsight, it's uh, he's worth probably triple that now, I would imagine. Well, maybe. Endrick will go down a similar path. Real Madrid have a, a wonderful habit of buying players, in the ilk of Endrick that seemed to make it. Rodrigo as well as having a, a wonderful time with Real Madrid over the last year. Talk to me about Endrick. Talk to me about his because he he's almost become a, a, a just like a mystical figure that everyone sees from football manager online and he has all these incredible stats, like he scored nine million goals from the age of eleven onwards. But no one, no one can really watch him. It's not that accessible unless you have, I suppose, access to things like Boy Scout and Insta. Tell me about his style of play then.
2: I don't think he's, he's too dissimilar to Messi in, in a lot of ways because he's got a sort of small, slight figure that Messi mm-hmm. has, which gives him a low centre of gravity and it means that he's quick around the pitch. Um, he likes, he can get into the box, he can drop back as well. Um, you know, he, he can offer a bit of both, as, um, which I think is really, really important in the modern game because you can't really just do one and not the other because that's not how football works these days. So, um I think in that sense, he's a lot like Messi and, and certainly with the goal production uh, and, and, and um, contributions that he makes. Um, I think he reads the game well as well, which, which, is, which is always really important because you don't always get that. You get players who sometimes, you know, like, say, uh, an out-and-out striker who just sit, he waits in the box until the chance comes to him. Which makes him an easy target, but Endrick has a good movement, a bit like Messi, as I said. So he can time his runs, he can read the game, he knows where to make those runs and when to to meet the ball and where to meet the ball, which makes him difficult to defend against. Um, I, I think he's a really interesting player, actually, and you know Real Madrid have have they've got an interesting player. Um, like you said, Vinicius Junior, bags of pace, gets behind. We saw that at the World Cup with you know him making runs behind and and. Endrick is definitely that that sort of figure
0: Real Madrid have a a wonderful recruitment model in the sense that they don't really go out and sign like niche players that nobody's heard of they'll just go out and spend 50 odd million on someone who will be the best in the position or is the best in their position you know like too many they just they sold Casemiro a few weeks after but they brought him in for 100 million that's not as if they found like this hidden gem from France he was in linked with Liverpool and a number of other clubs and then he's at Real Madrid the same with Endrick he was he rose to stardom on Real Madrid he was uh, he went viral i mean his stats went viral clips of him went viral and then Real Madrid spent an obscene amount of money to bring him to the Bernabeu Lee for, for someone that like works in recruitment or that you know you've worked in recruitment at several clubs now. Does does Real Madrid's model make you win or are you kind of just impressed because they have money and they flaunt it?
3: Um not sure. I think they have money. I mean David just talked about I think it was you had but mentioned Rodrigo. Mm. Um has Rodrigo had a great career? I feel like in the last year he's been
0: I mean, he was vital to their Champions League winning campaign. Yeah. He scored some big coming goals. Coming off the bench. Yeah, coming off the bench. He hasn't yeah. had a great career now, definitely not. But I think he's improved in the last year. He's yeah, been solid.
3: I think say, sometimes, yeah. sometimes there's a pathway issue. And I maybe date myself a little bit. I don't know if any of you guys can remember when Neymar started to break through at Santos. I can. Yeah, and yeah. I can remember it was the same thing as Endrick He used to see you'd get YouTube compilations and he was just making grown men look silly to the point that some of the tackles were just assault mm-hmm. on him. And this was a young wiry kid at Santos He was taking the ball, flicking the ball over people's head. He's still doing it in France, to be fair. But back then, the Brazilian, the answer to the Brazilian defenses was just to batter him, basically. Hendrick's similar. I mean, Endrick is, as David said, there's an element of Messi about him in the way that he likes to get the ball and slalom. And he's got that mm-hmm. balance and body control and strength, his core, which makes that possible. And um, but I think in terms of Real Madrid's recruitment model, you can't argue with it when they get it right. And I think too many, who you talked about, they got absolutely bang on and get one of the premier sixes for the next 10 years. They absolutely did. Vinicius Junior, I think they got lucky on. I think they were very close to giving up on him. Um, he was getting a lot of stick from the fans. He, was, he wasn't was producing. Um, he did had fallen outs with players and things like that. And then all of a sudden it clicked. And when that happens, they look very smart because they went out and spent all this money on a young player from Brazil. And look look how great we are, this young player from Brazil just came off. But at what cost, when you see the likes of Isco and Marcos Asensio, who've been there for so long and haven't played because they're taking in these players from elsewhere, whereas they have players there already. I think it's people say it's easy to be in recruitment when you've got all this money to spend, but I think it would be difficult I think that if you were a Man City, a Real Madrid, a Liverpool, you're competing against two or three clubs for the very, very best players in the world. And I think that becomes difficult because when you start talking about betting on potential and buying young players like Endrick, a lot could go wrong for Endrick. It really could, he could pick up a bad injury in the next few weeks and then he could struggle to get back to fitness, it could be recurring, anything could happen at this point. So I absolutely don't blame him and his family for getting the deal done quickly. Um I'd like to see him live up to his potential because I think in terms of potential, when you're looking for players beyond the Mbappe, Hallands, who are going to be coming through next, if you like. So we've had the Ronaldo, Messi years. We're entering the Haaland, Mbappe years. Who's coming after that? I think in terms of pure raw potential, the likes of Endic will be up there as long as it all comes well. But I would have liked to see him move to a club, say Porto Benfica, where he's going to play more regular first-team football in Europe before he's then expected to just be a superstar. I think there's a lot of pressure on young shoulders.
0: Yeah, I agree. And also just in terms of the money they're getting, I know Brazil, there's a lot of clubs in Brazil with financial issues at the minute. And I think money certainly helps them. You see, even with São Paulo when Anthony moved to Manchester United, they were, Man United had owed them, I believe 20 million or 25 million of that money, um, which is a a huge figure to be fair for, for, you know, for Ajax to give away that much money in, in a sale. Um, when they bought Anthony from Sao Paulo. But obviously they were in such debt that that money really mattered to them. So I think obviously you have players like Vinicius Rodrigo and Hendrik and coming from these clubs, and it's it really helps the clubs financially. There's just two players left on the list. We'll move, though, uh, firstly, to the one I wrote about for the TFA 23 for 23 magazine. That is a player who had a wonderful time in Ecuador before moving to a bigger, a top five league in Europe, he had a, a pretty decent World Cup, I believe. And it no, it wasn't Moses Casado, it was uh, Piero Hincapié, who has been an interesting player. I think he's a really exciting central defender. He struggled at the start of the season to get into the team. He was kind of in and out under um Gerard Schwanney, Or Again, I definitely butchered that. But I think he was in and out of the side. Chabi Alonso came in, he's been a bit more constant. He's played in... A back four, he's played in the back three as a left left side of a tree. He can also play left back. He can play left centre half. For Ecuador, he did play as a left centre back. He he um, he's rapid for one. He's very quick. He has decent reading of the game. I wrote in the piece that he is quite aggressive, but it's it can be a good thing because he's not he's not that physically well built. But the issue is sometimes he's. Kind of all arms and elbows, which he, he so he does give away. He has a habit of giving away, f- giving away fouls. He as well because he's not as physically built. He does need to be aggressive. So when he's not close to a player, I mean, we saw it in the Senegal game, I believe there was a couple of examples where from set pieces he wasn't anywhere near Kudibali, and he just he just couldn't match him because. I, and I don't fully blame him for that. Kudibali a monster of a man physically. He's what six six four six three. He's a, a huge central defender. So it's, but he, he, from a physical point of view, as I said, he does need to be extremely aggressive. Fintan, I'll ask you your opinion on Hinkapie. Uh, I suppose from watching him at the World Cup, were you impressed by him? One of the things as well that I quite like is his, I suppose, his ball carrying and his, his passing abilities.
1: I love him on the ball for sure. Yeah. I, I saw small bits of him. I can't mm-hmm. say I'm I'm an expert in him now, but um from what I did see of him, yeah, I thought he was excellent on the ball for sure. And he does stand out in certain uh certain metrics as well from that perspective, just looking through exciting young central defenders. So his name does pop up here and there quite a bit. Um so yeah, I mean in, in from that side of things, I think he'll be uh he'll be an interesting one going forward. Would you compare him with anyone from watching him yourself? Um, in terms of his style or his, uh, I suppose, abilities or any certain things here or there? It's hard to say. It's, it's really difficult. Um,
0: You know, I find, well, maybe it's just me, maybe I'm just a poor judge of, of, of good young players, but I find central defenders one of the most difficult positions to predict in terms of, I suppose, how good they're going to be because most central defenders who become... I suppose world class don't really get there until maybe their mid to late twenties. I mean, you look at Van Dijk; obviously, he was a perfect example of that. Sergio Ramos played right back for a long time when he was young at Real Madrid. You know, I believe until about twenty. I think it was Mourinho's last season. He started to move more centrally. He was a right back until then. Yeah, I think it's 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 so difficult to predict whether a centre back is going to become uh, a, a top class player. Henkapie looks as though he has all the potential to do so but again like as i said you look at van dyke at celtic i wouldn't have said he'd become a world-class defender you know so it it is hard to predict um in terms of comparisons nobody really sticks out at the minute in my mind for someone he resembles for his play style maybe if you guys can think of someone you jump in but i don't ben White. ben White,
3: and why is that I think he's very similar in the way that he moves, in the way that he tracks the game. Ben White was never a centre-back at Leeds or at Arsenal, who was great aerially, same as Incope. Um, He's not great in the air, but in terms of ground duels, he's very aggressive and very quick in terms of the way that he moves his hips to engage and, and engage the ball carrier. Um, comfortable defending out wide as well. He's pulled out wide, so he could play as a back three in the same way that White could um. But again, it's the ability on the ball is the same as Ben White for me and he can step out with the ball. So we've seen White more at right back this season, mm-hmm. where that ability it changes the way you play if you play right back or centre back, obviously. But at centre back, White, when he was at Leeds especially, would step forward to provoke the press all the time and then look for opportunities to pass through. I think they're very similar in that sense.
0: And his passing is I think he was. Would... Oh, sorry, David. yeah, you jump in because you just put a stat in the chat there, which yeah. is really impressive.
2: Yes, yeah, so I, I was looking him up and I found that he had the most forward passes at the 21 Copa America Tournament, 89. Um, and I, I saw a bit of him at the World Cup. And I what really impressed me about him is not only his defending, but his ability to get forward as well. And you talked about, I can't remember who it was, but I think it was Fintan talked about how he could play left back as well as centre back um, mm. as well. And... That really showed at the, at the World Cup because he was he was getting forward in support and sending crosses in from the final third from from wide positions. So, I I think if I was going to make a comparison, I would say or not a comparison, but perhaps a uh, analytical um, note on him. I'd say he fits into something like you know Chris Wilder does, where he's got his, his ball playing centre back and they mm-hmm. get forward. Um, I think he'd fit into that system. I'm not saying he'd go and play for Chris Wilder, but you know, you It'll know, be like Chris, made in heaven, that. yeah, it was. But you know, like Chris Basham did and Jack O'Connell did, yeah. and, and you know, they, uh, John Egan did, they got forward and they were almost responsible for creating the goals. And I think actually he fits into that profile, mm-hmm. if you like. Um, I he's a player that really, really excites me. I, I really like watching him, and as yeah. I say, um I've watched a bit of him at, at Bayer Leverkusen. I, I watched him at the World Cup, and yeah, he's he's a good player, he's, he's definitely mm-hmm. one to watch.
0: And I did write in the piece, obviously, as well, for that he I, th- I suppose his experience playing left-back helps him defend the wide areas really well, but I also wrote that he sometimes he can, uh, I suppose, make a pass when he doesn't really need to. Sometimes he can force it. It's not necessarily a, 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 an awful issue, I'm sure, with Xabi Alonso being such a a, a wonderful technical player that he was, in the midf- obviously, in the midfield, that he can kind of iron those issues out of him of when to make the right pass. Sometimes he does kind of rush forward passes to break the lines, Um I'm not sure if that was more just a tactical issue with Ecuador as opposed to maybe an issue with him himself, but I can only kind of go off what I saw off my own eyes, and it was a small sample size at the World Cup, so I can only really say it was, I suppose, a, a him issue. We will move on, though, to the last player of our picks for the top five uh, players and coaches that we believe will have an excellent 2023. And Lee, it is a player from a club that you... You watch very closely because they have produced some excellent players in recent years, from Camaldin, uh, Sulaimana, really excellent players, and I believe uh, Andreas Shelter up as well, uh, players for Norgeland. He's linked though with a move away, or maybe he's got a move. I know I'm not sure. Um, no, not yet, but he, he's he's linked with a move away. Anyway, he's a, a truly excellent, excellent player. We wrote about him for the last uh, or for last year's TFA twenty two for twenty two magazine. Lee, talk to us then about Ernest Nuama for for the listeners at home that aren't really aware of him, because I wasn't aware of him
3: before I read your piece. Uh, yeah, I think that for, for Nordisland, first of all, if, whenever I'm asked to pick a player for a podcast or a magazine, you're know, a young player going mm-hmm. forward, I just um, look on Transfer Market in Nordisland and just pick one. <laughs> you're bound to find one that's going to be good if you do it that way. I think Sheldrup's a little bit of a cheat, because he's actually from Bordred um, they they signed him a couple of years ago and put him straight into the first team, and that was part of the deal. The reason he agreed to leave Bodo was because Nordland said, come here, we'll play in the first team, mm-hmm. and kind of did, and you're right, he's brilliant. Um, Ernest Nyoma is someone who broke out this season, at the start of this season, was his real breakout point. Um, he'd be highly rated by coaches at Norgesland before that. He's another one who comes through their partnership with Right to Dream and Unlike a lot of partnerships that clubs have with academies, this one's slightly different in that right to dream actually own Norjland, not the other way around. So they yeah, that's their investment their investment in Norjland means that there's a lot of sharing of players. So a lot of the the Danish players go across to Right to Dream in Ghana, and I'm sure they'll go to the one that's opened up in Egypt as well. Um, so there's a lot of cross-cultural experiences for players and then obviously the, the top picks on the, the Ghanaian academy will come across and play in Europe. And that's where Kamadim Suleimana, who's now out of Red, um, came from. Um, Suleimana himself, I don't think he's done himself justice since he went to France, but he is a player who is going to have a bright future. I think that Ernst Numa is slightly different despite potentially playing in similar positions. Um, he can play wide on the left or centrally through the middle in the attack and he's comfortable in both areas. When you, you watch him play, when you see his tendencies in terms of his movements, he likes to drift out to the left-hand side, wherever he is, to pick up the ball in the first instance. But then he very much attacks diagonally and tries to mm. break inside in the half space in the penalty area. The same kind of movements that we saw from Thierry Henry for years in the Premier League, where he just drifts away from defenders. Um, really, really smart for such a young player in that he can pick up little pockets of space really good movements off the blind side. He likes to take the back of the defenders and then make darting runs behind them or drop off to receive the ball. I think when I first started watching him, his data peaked after maybe five or six games in Denmark this season. Um, that's kind of when I started to look around the leagues and see who's interested who's young. Mm. And I was still with Aberdeen at the time and straight away I rolled him out because there was no way in hell we were getting a chance at this player because the data was too good. And... Um, and when you watched him play, it was just that ability to... You get young players who break through and quite often the stage kind of disrupts their development a little bit. They'll be highly rated coming through. Then they'll play first-team level in front of big crowds against professional teams and their output drops. So very good, but drops. You get some exceptions like Kylian Mbappe and Wayne Rooney to really stand mm-hmm. out that the second they step on a pitch at first-team level they just elevated. Erling Haaland wasn't like that. Erling Haaland took a little bit of time in Norway and then at Salzburg before he really broke out the way that he did. And I think that what really impressed me about Ernst Neumann is that he was one who just took to it. Um, The stage wasn't too big for him. He's got ice in his veins when he finishes. He's comfortable finishing one-on-one with the keeper. He can score when the ball's crossed in the area. His good separation movements to get away from defenders in the penalty area. And he can carry the ball and run really dangerously. I think he's going to be, after Sheldrup, I think Sheldrup's next off the, the production line. Not the production line, because he came from Bodo. But he's the next sale from Norgisland. I think that Ernst Neumann will be the one after that. But the investments are just so good.
0: What's the best step, do you feel, to go from Norgisland to, I suppose, as you said, Suleymane maybe hasn't killed as much as you thought he would in France we know that Mohamed Kudu's gone to Ajax and he's absolutely killed it this season. He's killed it. He's genuinely smashed. It. He's having an unbelievable season. I think he's in double figures for goals now already, which is genuinely. He's not amazing. a striker, remember. Yeah. He doesn't like playing striker. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, he's every position, though. Like, I think last season he played as an 8 a 10, a left winger. He played on the right. The only place position he didn't play was really up front. And then uh, the new manager comes in, Alfred Schroeder, and he plays centre forward, which he has openly admitted he doesn't like playing and he's hit double <laughs> figures for goals. So maybe um him, maybe he doesn't know himself very well. I think he also did an interview with Kudus. Uh, so I'm getting sidetracked where he said he's on level with Neymar, I believe. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, he said he's the same as good just as good but not as famous. So the guard yeah, the Guardian actually um wrote that verbatim for what he said and he tweeted it saying that they were basically like clickbait and it was completely false (laughs) but it's completely verbatim like everything he says he says I'm level on par with Neymar it couldn't be taken out of context there's absolutely zero way it's taken out of context anyway um just yeah so sorry what do you think is the best I suppose progression path for a player than to go from Nordland to like what league do you believe is probably the best next step for them if you were new what what league would you be looking to go to?
3: I think when you talk about Camden Suleimana moving to Ren, and you talk about Mohamed Kudus who of course made the same move he was the one before Suleimana. Mm-hmm. so there's always one coming at Nordishland. Kudus was that one and I think his move to Ajax I think those pathways make a lot of sense to me Suleimana hasn't been as good at Ren as I thought he was going to be um, he's there with Jeremy Doku and I think if you want two dribbly wingers then those are two guys who you'd have right at the top of your list Um and then Ren's recruitment and youth development is just possibly second to none in Europe at times when you look at the calibre of players. Um, if I was moving from Norwichland, I'd be looking at either, it has to be Ajax in the Netherlands, I think. I wouldn't advise a player to go to PSV or go to Feyenoord and certainly up below that. Mm-hmm. It has to be top five in, in Liga. so Ren would make sense. Leal would make sense to me in terms of, I'm not talking top five right now, but when you think about where a club should be, if you think about infrastructure and finances and budget, um, I move to allele or not so much a Lyon just now. They're too much of a mess. And then beyond that, I'd be looking at Germany probably. But again, it has to be the right club. You can't just take a player from Norseland and drop them at uh, Bayern Munich, for example, even Borussia Dortmund and expect them to thrive. And the other one would be RB Salzburg because... If I was advising any young player, I'd be telling them to try and get to RB, RB Salzburg as quickly as possible because you're going to get to play, you're going to get a short window and you're going to develop. Um, so that would be kind of my thoughts. I, I don't think there'll be a lot of interest. there would be a lot of people talking about Premier League if he continues to go as he is. He's, he's quite... He's not under the radar in terms of social media. People are aware of him, they are talking about him, but there isn't a hype that there is around some other young players. Mm -hmm. If he gets another five goals this season, over the second half of the season, that'll change. And he's not ready for a move to a Champions League-ready club at top five league yet. He needs to develop first. Amazing. Guys, we've wrapped up our 10 picks there. There are still 13
0: on the from the tfa magazine if you want to go check them out as i said it's only 5 euro 99 to access the magazine for all access members which is equivalent to about five pound 27 finton lee david thank you so much for joining me today i really enjoyed this and i hope the listeners did too to all this at home make sure to tune in on monday as Bryant and i have another episode of tfa scouted for you all and make sure to rate the podcast too and share it with your followers friends and families as it really helps us grow and do check out the TFA 23 for 23 Magazine, which is available for just the price of a point. I wrote two pieces on it, and it was a pleasure to be part of such an, an excellent piece of content unlike anything else out there right now. Thank you all for listening, and goodbye for now.